How old were you when you first heard the term intellectual property? Don't feel bad if you can't remember. I mean, I was way more into Lizzie McGuire than IP when I was young. And you can't really blame kids for being more obsessed with some other words. Like the name of a particular bear featured in our last episode, for example. But there is a growing movement to get kids more excited about IP and at an earlier age. Some experts and industry groups are even trying to position knowledge of the IP system as a key life skill for younger generations who are able to consume and assimilate information way faster than most of us. After all, the young folks of today were born into a digital world, and they're literally surrounded by IP from the get-go, whether they notice it or not. But how exactly do we get children excited about and interested in the topic of IP? Which tools can we use to connect with younger demographics, to tap their boundless creativity and help them realize their full potential? And what's at risk if we don't? This is Stroke of Genius, proudly presented by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. I'm your host, IP enthusiast, entrepreneur, and business growth specialist, Raha Francis. On this season finale episode, grab your books, backpack, and brown bag lunch, because we're going back to school to talk about the importance of giving our children a good IP education and how to get them excited about it. I'll admit, it doesn't have quite the same ring, but it's hoped that one day, intellectual property rights will be right up there alongside reading, writing, and arithmetic when it comes to the things kids learn about in school. And why not? It sure seems like they have a growing interest in the subject. As inventors, we need to learn about this because if someone steals your idea, then you no longer matter. I started my business when I was seven years old, so I've been in business for a little over seven years. My first invention, like a totally new idea, was a pole. I made it, and I think that this should be under my name. It's especially important for young inventors to learn about the topic of intellectual property. The idea is also picking up steam in the IP sector. The IPO Education Foundation collaborated with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and the Girl Scouts Nation's Capital to create a special curriculum for Girl Scouts back in 2012, which later turned into a toolkit for troops, teachers, and IP professionals to use in their own communities. Both the USPTO and the National Inventors Hall of Fame have also put kid-friendly resources on their websites. And overseas, the UK's IP office even launched a campaign a few years ago to engage with kids using cartoons, featuring a French bulldog named Nancy who protects her ideas from her feline nemesis, Kitty Perry. But there's still a lot more that could be done on this front. And to help us figure out our options, I'm super excited to introduce our final guest of the season. Tony Ilya Costas is a professor at New York Law School, also known on social media as the IP professor. Tony, welcome to Stroke of Genius. Thank you, Raha. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Tony, I had a chance to check out some of your videos on Instagram. They're super fun and accessible, as well as educational. So tell us, how did you first come up with the idea of promoting the IP system on social media? So the IP professor started more as an endeavor to do something during the pandemic. I was pretty much in my second year teaching at New York Law School, which is where I'm an adjunct professor of entertainment law and IP. And I found that 
my type of teaching is very much outside the fray of what a typical law school professor instills in the classroom. Normally, it's going to be Socratic method, cold calling, kind of dry material. Oh my gosh, I'm getting PTSD just thinking about that. I went to law school years ago. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, right. So I wanted to be the anti-law school evangelist in the sense that I'm not against law school, but I wanted to go against the fray of what a typical law school professor would do what the law school system kind of invokes. So a lot of my learning is very visual based, uh, a lot of videos, a lot of photos, memes. And it's mainly because I think IP marries so well into that material. So second year teaching, and I thought I should do something that's a bit of an extension of what I do in the classroom, but make that material accessible to the everyday person. And so I decided to create the IP professor uh, for initially on Instagram, and now it's expanded to TikTok and now YouTube as essentially a platform to kind of talk a little bit more about IP and how it really is everywhere around us, whether we're aware of it or not. And so I try to bring that information out in the open. And what initially started as a project for the everyday law student who was interested in IP has expanded beyond that to just a fan of Marvel, Star Wars, pop culture, you don't have to be a lawyer to watch The IP Professor. And I think that's what gives me a lot of self-satisfaction. And tell me, like, what's the reaction to your videos been like? It's been overly positive. I was worried, like, oh, my God, people, you know, are going to make fun of this, da-da-da. And I found that that wasn't the case. It was so well-received. And the best part is, usually I have a call to action where I encourage viewers to comment. And it's really, really plentiful. And it it just gives me a sense of encouragement that people actually care about the subject matter. And so they want to talk about it. And I think this is a very satisfying feeling for sure. That's awesome. I'm so like, it's so great to see and hear that it's been well received. It also speaks to such a need for IP to be made more accessible. I'm also curious, you know, what do your colleagues at New York Law School think of your side hustle? (laughs) I I have a fair amount of colleagues that are within my age bracket. Um, I'm only 33 years old. So most of them seem to embrace that type of content. I'm not well connected with the older generation of lawyers there. Maybe that's a good thing because I think they would view this type of content as detrimental to the image of the law school. But, But then I would have a counter argument to that where I would say, well, how is it? It's no different than if we were publishing a book on the subject matter. The difference is I'm cutting out the middleman. I'm the one making the content. I'm the one calling the shots and sharing this content. And it appeals to a need. And it's not like I'm just doing a lip sync video. I'm talking about actual hard news related to IP. And it's the topics that people send me in the DMs. And they're saying, hey, Tony, could you talk about this? It just speaks to the demand that people have that they want to hear this stuff. They don't just want to like saturate themselves in like dumb videos on TikTok and Instagram. They want value out of it. And that I try to provide that with any type of video I put up. Your passion for the topic is pretty obvious, right? But I think it's safe to say that most people generally don't get quite as fired up about IP as you. What's the elevator pitch you use to convince initial doubters of the huge role that IP plays in our lives? So... I always start with my catchphrase, IP is everywhere, whether you're aware of it or not. And to that point, think of a movie trailer. Just watch any movie trailer whatsoever. Black Panther, Avengers, Star Wars, Top Gun, whatever. More likely than not, you're going to see not just the IP of music being used, but maybe even the storyline. Because, for example, Top Gun was based off of an article that was the inception of the 1986 film. As a result, now we have a lawsuit that is kind of pending related to that. Bottom line is, 
for people to understand how important IP is, it's just a matter of bringing to them the everyday things that they use. And then they have that self-realization of, wow, I didn't realize it, but this is related to patent law. This is related to copyright law. This may be even related to trade secret. You know, I tell people, if you ordered a Big Mac, the Big Mac sauce is likely a trade secret, even though we know all know Thousand Island dressing, but either way, it's at the end of the day, it has a touch point with IP. So bringing people home on that point makes them have that bit of an aha moment. That's great. Yeah. Speaking of uh, movie trailers, shout out because our last episode actually focused on Winnie the Pooh as a serial killer. Oh, man. In a potentially upcoming <laughs> movie. So IP is everywhere, folks. It's everywhere. You had one video, Tony, that got a lot of attention from Michael Jackson fans. Tell us about it. So I have a running series called Weird IP. It's essentially about that weird, unique, and interesting IP that you probably didn't know about. So, of course, Michael Jackson, we all know, is this iconic musician, has won dozens of awards, ranging from a Grammy to American Music Award, so on and so forth. He was very much decorated as a performer, but not many people knew that he's actually credited as an inventor in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And how he became an inventor all connects back to a smooth criminal music video. If you watch that music video, there's the part, I guess, like five-ish minutes in, maybe six minutes in, where there's no music. It's just him and his dancers doing choreography. And there's a scene where he does the lean. Well, the lean is all connected to a patent that he registered along with another inventor. You know, he didn't defy the laws of physics. How he was able to do the lean was there was a nail sticking up from the ground. And on his heel, in the heel of his shoe, is this gap. And essentially, during the filming of the music video, his heel would click to that nail, and then he would be able to lean down along with his other dancers and then lean right back up. And it was that prototype, that nail with the heel system that he registered as a patent in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and was awarded the utility patent five or six years after the music video aired. Very cool. But if I were to play devil's advocate, Tony, I'd say MJ isn't exactly huge with the kids these days. Totally. (laughs) So how do you appeal to younger audiences more effectively? What kinds of stories or cases can bridge the gap? I think it's a matter of calling back to older media, but also bringing in newer media. So I'll give you the perfect example. The iconic case of Miller versus Ford, Ninth Circuit decision that relates to personality rights. Lincoln Mercury was doing an ad campaign that featured Bette Midler, her song, Do You Want to Dance? So they went to her agent. They went to her. They asked, could we use Do You Want to Dance? She declined. So the ad agency, on behalf of Lincoln Mercury, did the next best thing, and they went to her backup singer and asked her, hey, could you please re- recreate the song? And she said, absolutely. And of course, Ben Midler said, this is an infringement of my personality rights. So she sued on that basis. And the Ninth Circuit found that even though it was another person replicating her voice, her voice was as much of a unique part of her identity as it is with her name, her image, her likeness, the way she looked. And so the court found that that was a blatant violation of her personality rights and awarded judgment on in favor of Bette Midler. Now, that case came down in the 1980s. Let's fast forward to today. We have now stories where there are AI technology systems that are able to create fake podcasts between Joe Rogan and Steve Jobs. That could be a problem because For now, it's like an experiment, right? Oh, it's a dead guy, Steve Jobs, talking to Joe Rogan. It's the most unlikely conversation, and it sounds so awkward when you listen to it, but the technology is fairly impressive, and you can't deny it. 
What's to say that that technology is now going to be available to a brand and they do fake advertising where Harry Styles, who never endorsed, let's say, Colgate, is now all of a sudden endorsing Colgate because of this AI technology. This is going to be Bette Midler versus Ford part two. So when you're talking about connecting with Gen Z, talking about those older cases and marrying it to current event stories that they see I think that that's important and it creates that relatability because not only are they going to learn something about the current event story now, but they're also going to learn about something back then that connects to the story that's happening now. So I think not forgetting the past, but creating a bridge between the past and the present and even the future is a vital part of education, generally speaking. That's what I try to do in my classroom. And that's certainly what I do when I'm creating videos for the IP professor. Coming up, more from the IP professor. And we'll dig into the archives to hear from a young inventor that was featured in last season of the podcast. I'm Raha Francis, and you're listening to Stroke of Genius, the podcast that explores intellectual property from the perspective of successful inventors, innovators, and creators. This season, we're tackling some myths and misconceptions to help you better understand how to navigate the tricky world of IP protection and learn how the system can work for everyone, especially people from historically underrepresented communities. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the work of the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, just visit ipoef.org. Welcome back. Today, we're exploring the importance of getting kids interested in, familiar with, and excited about IP protection with the help of the IP professor, Tony Iliacostas. To kick off part two of the podcast, I want to spend a bit of time addressing some common misconceptions. The first one is that the IP system is only relevant to adults. So last year, Stroke of Genius featured a young inventor named Ronak Singh, who first got into building robots on his ninth birthday. During the pandemic lockdown, he also invented a touchless, temperature-sensing keypad. You would like enter in a keypad, on especially your name, without any contact. You could just hover your finger over this temperature sensor. What that does is it takes your name and your temperature and it puts that in an Excel sheet. The idea was that in my school, even, that you could just go beep. And then the guy would enter his name and there would be attendance and temperature checking all in one. It's pretty incredible and Ronak's passion is palpable. So what would you say, Tony, to those who dismiss the importance of the IP system when it comes to incentivizing the next generation of inventors? Um, Listen to this kid. This kid is like the perfect case study that a lot of people, not just limiting it to adults, but even children, should sort of look at when we're talking about how creativity truly has no boundaries. It's very important for people to know whether you're a lawyer, a layperson, a a child, an adult, whoever, that anybody can create IP. It's it's just a marvel to to see. And, And as I was listening to that clip, I couldn't help but smile because this is exactly the type of creativity that you hope for, for our generation of, you know, young kids to to carry with them as they go into their teenage years and even to adulthood. Tony, what about kids who, like Ronak, are quite curious, but maybe unlike Ronak, aren't trying to be inventors in that traditional sense, but might create or consume content online? What do you think they stand to gain from a greater focus on IP education? They certainly have an opportunity to find how, if they're not good at one capacity, like science or engineering or what have you, their talents could be found somewhere else. I mean, a child 
that may not necessarily have like the scientific chops to do inventions like Ronick shouldn't necessarily say, oh, I can't, I can't find myself in any aspect of IP because there's a reason why there are six branches of IP. There's copyright, trademarks, patents, trade secrets, trade dress, and personality rights. So if you're not good at patents, you got five other opportunities to do something with it. And I think that it's, you know, certainly really inspirational to kind of see children, you know, have, have that type of creativity. And I, I think this is a call to action, even to parents, you know, parents, if you're, if you're listening to this, please, if your child has something that they're working on, that they're very passionate about and they're creative, support them in that mission, endorse what they're doing, help them through that process, coach them, be, you know, do the thing you need to do as a parent while also legally protecting them, but let them have, have their moment. And I think that it's important for children, especially with the kind of technology we have at our disposal to be able to flex that creative muscle. And certainly, uh, you know, Ronick is an excellent display of that for sure. A common misconception that we've talked about on the podcast before is that IP might be a limitation on creativity. What would you say to kids or parents who have heard that before? I actually disagree with that because IP is anything but a limitation on creativity. If anything, it would encourage people to find something that may not be necessarily talked about and finding a way to protect that legally. You know, I'll give you the perfect example. I was in the grocery store and I was in the dairy aisle and there are tons of different yogurt brands, right? There's Siggy's, there's Yoplait, there's Dannon, and there's something called chickpea. And I was looking at the label and sure enough, it's chickpea-based yogurt. But what's funny is that the logo is spelled C-H-K-P. So it is missing all the vowels. But even then, the word chickpea is registered as a trademark in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And, you know, I think to myself, that was a very lazy way of calling a yogurt brand something that's suggesting what it is, this yogurt-based brand with chickpeas. But even then, it got the protection. And it, in my opinion, it was certainly creative, but it wasn't original enough for me to qualify it as being like super creative. But I think that underlines what IP is all about. You don't have to create something super duper novel. You could, and you could register that in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office as a patent, or you could register it in the U.S. Copyright Office, whatever. But even then, you don't have to do something totally out of the norm. You could have some degree of creativity and even then it could be protected under some aspect of IP. You know, I, I call back even to the rules of copyright law. Copyright is an original work of authorship fixed in a tangible medium of expression. One of the buzzwords there is originality and our court system in the US has made it very clear that you don't have to do something grandiose to, for it to be original. Some degree of creativity is enough for it to be creative. So to me, I think for parents and, and kids who are a bit skeptical about them creating something creative, don't doubt yourself. Just give it a try. And if it, it and if it doesn't fly, go back to the drawing board. Try again. If, if a brand like Chickpea is able to get a trademark protection for a devowelized name, if that's such a word, <laughs> what's stopping you from taking your creativity and flexing that into something in the realm of copyright, trademarks, patents, so on and so forth? Okay. So let's say everyone now agrees that kids need to learn about IP at a younger age. We've convinced them all, clearly. But let's talk a bit more about how you can convey the complexities of the system to kids. You mentioned relatability earlier. I think relatability boils down to having resources available for people to understand and grapple with like everyday culture. So the show that I related to a lot when I was a kid was Arthur, because I think Arthur 
touched on a lot of points that I dealt with as a kid when I was growing up in middle school, going into high school. You know, bullying, it touched on making friends. It touched on being part of a, of the cool kids. You know, Arthur was the was the first cartoon educational series to touch on LGBTQ relationships with parents. I think it addressed lightly the issue of 9-11. These were topics that were married into the show and allowed children to retain this information while also allowing parents to let their child see for themselves, you know, this is what you're going to see in the real world. A kid's going to make fun of you for the way you look. You're not going to have that cool toy, so you're going to have to resort to playing with bottle caps, and maybe playing with bottle caps is going to make you a cool kid. And if I had to tie that back into IP, obviously talking about older law and connecting that with current event stories is imperative. But the way you do that is by having resources available. So school districts having maybe panels where they would bring in real world IP attorneys to talk about these matters in a relatable fashion. So what's stopping a school district from maybe bringing people from Sesame Workshop to come and talk about some of the IP issues they deal with? Or talking about Sesame Workshop, what if you created like a puppet program where you had like a tour of puppeteers going to different schools to educate children about IP? You know, I I think that having something that's going to be age appropriate, that's going to be easy enough for them to understand while also connecting to the actual nitty gritty of IP is the gateway to opening the doors to essentially what you said earlier, making IP no different than arithmetic, English, vocabulary in our in our educational system. And I think that if children see that they're so saturated in IP in just the cartoons that they watch on a Saturday or Sunday morning, they're going to see for themselves, wow, I didn't realize that even when I'm working on my Chromebook in class, that's that's related to IP because there's a, possibly a patent related to that. Creating that connection, that bridge, it, it will make the learning experience related to IP much more pleasant and probably much more enjoyable for the child. It won't feel like a lecture, if you will. Tony, we're almost out of time, but before you rush off to your next lecture, I have one more question. What part do parents have to play in all of this? Uh, they have to be the start of it and the end of it. They are so vital to this entire process. You know, I think about when my parents schooled me, like, you know, I went to school. They were just as much a part of the process as my teachers, my peers, my principal, whoever. Because at the end of the day, when I would come home, they were the ones that sat down with me and helped me with my homework. They were the ones that reviewed my report card with me. They were the ones that helped me with science projects. My poor dad would work on like these ornate displays just to help me get beyond an honorable mention on my science awards. Either way, parents typically are invested in that process with their child and their educational journey. And I think that it's equally important when we're talking about it with IP. So parents should award and endorse their child if they have a creative spirit in them to bring that creativity out. And if they create a patent, if they create some type of copyrighted work, if they are creating some type of groundbreaking brand, a child should not be diffused for that creativity. A parent should now step in and say, wow, this is awesome. And then maybe take the next steps of trying to procure protection for that. Maybe working with an attorney. If let's say a kid creates a brand that is going to be earth shattering, what's to say that your child couldn't have that type of creative spirit? Working with a, if your child does that, working with a trademark attorney to get your child's trademark protected, shopping around to see if maybe a retailer want to take their goods in. 
whatever. I'm using that as an example, but either way, the parent plays a role in it because not only are they, you know, the legal guardian or the legal enforcer of those rights up up until the child is of age, but at the end of the day, the child relies on a cheerleader and the parent needs to be that cheerleader for that child. So this is my call to action to parents. Embrace Learn IP with your child because you're going to find that it's just as fun for them as it will be for you. It'll be a nice collective effort for you to bond with your child. And it's something that could maybe spark interest for them in the future. I I obviously cannot speak highly enough about IP. My, My social media handles speak for itself. I think that IP is the one area of law that truly promotes creativity. And I I think that what we've talked about today really illustrates that quite emphatically. I mean, it's been a few years since I was in middle school, but I even learned something today. You know, there's lots there for adults and younger folk alike. Thanks so much for being a part of Stroke of Genius. Thank you so much, Raha. It's a pleasure. My guest today has been the IP professor, Tony Iliacostas from New York Law School. I'd also like to extend a very special thank you to the Invention Convention students like Anthony and Ravi, who sent us their thoughts on IP for this episode as well. Whether they know it or not, the children and teenagers of today live in an unprecedented age of intellectual property. They're surrounded by trademarked logos, copyrighted songs and characters, and patented products they couldn't live without. More young people are also creating content themselves. And while social media can be a goldmine of inspiration and opportunity, they have to be made aware of the important implications of IP rights in that space. That's why IPO Education Foundation is working to increase awareness and education among young innovators and those from underrepresented communities, places where creativity already exists, but IP rights might not. Because education about IP will drive innovation and economic prosperity. And yes, parents, that might one day mean sitting down to help your kids with their IP homework instead of trigonometry or calculus. That sounds like a win to me. I'm Raha Francis, and this is Stroke of Genius, brought to you by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. That's it for season five. Thanks so much for listening. I hope, like me, you've learned a thing or two about IP. If you're hungry for more, I'd encourage you to check out some of our past episodes. And to learn more about the work of the IPO Education Foundation, visit ipoef.org. Bye for now.